the joy of serious literature. Welcome back to the joy of serious literature, the only literature theme podcast hosted by a man who recently severed the tip of his finger while doing the dishes. But who cares about me, my trauma, or my rotting infected flesh? We're here to talk about Lu Shun. Lu Shun was effectively the Chinese Mark Twain. He's the writer who gives birth to everything we think of as modern Chinese literature. There were great writers who came before him and paved the way for him, like Cao Shui Chin, the guy who wrote The Dream of the Red Chamber, and writers who came after him and built upon his work, like Qian Zhongshu, who wrote Fortress Besieged. But Lu Shun is the person who basically invents the Chinese short story, establishes Chinese prose writing for the first time as a meaningful and important avenue of literary endeavor. Before Lu Shun, literature meant poetry and only poetry. And he's the first Chinese writer who writes about actual common Chinese people, living common Chinese lives with common Chinese problems, and in doing so gives China's wrenching collapse into modernity, both a universal embodiment and an astounding vibrancy. Born in 1881, Lu Shun came of age during the most difficult period in modern Chinese history. The last of the imperial dynasties, the Qing, was in full-fledged catastrophic decline. Revolution was brewing. Warlords were starting to seize control of large portions of the country. European imperialists were using China's weakness to siphon off more and more of China's wealth and dignity, while Japanese imperialists had set their eyes on stealing huge swaths of China's land and turning the Chinese government into a veritable puppet state. The economy, largely thanks to cheap manufactured goods imported from Europe and America, was in chaos. The old principles of Confucianism that had guided China through 3,000 years were falling apart at the seams. At any moment, it seemed like China, the greatest and longest-lasting civilization the Earth had ever known, might break apart and collapse into complete degradation and maybe even death. As one does in such a situation, Lu Shun decided while still a child to dedicate his life to saving China from the jaws of oblivion. Initially, he thinks the way to do this is by studying Western medicine, and so against the wishes of his family, he sets out to study in Japan. Well, in Japan, though, Lu Shun loses faith in the usefulness of his medical studies. He still believes that science and medicine are important, that China has to embrace Western learning, but he realizes that science and medicine alone aren't enough. In the introduction to his first and most famous collection of stories, Outcry, Lu Shun writes, However rude a nation was in physical health, if its people were intellectually feeble, they would never become anything other than cannon fodder or gawping spectators. Their loss to the world through illness no cause for regret. The first task was to change their spirit, and literature and the arts, I decided at the time, were the best means to that end. So Lu Shun dropped out of medical school and returned to China to try and write China into consciousness. In this endeavor, though, he didn't initially have much luck. No one wanted to read his translations of Chekhov. The magazine he founded with some friends in Shanghai folded before printing even a single issue. And so he ends up spending quite a few years bouncing around China, teaching here and there at the handful of nascent universities growing up around the country, before finally ending up in Beijing. In Beijing, Lu Shun eventually gets involved in what's called the May 4th Movement. The May 4th Movement is the first great protest movement in China, and it's one of the watershed moments in all Chinese history. 
Students, intellectuals, factory workers, even peasants, all pour into the streets to protest the Versailles Treaty, which gave control of all the various colonial concessions in China controlled by the Germans before World War I over to the Japanese, instead of back to the Chinese, despite the Chinese, to their mind, having contributed far more to the war effort to defeat Germany. These protests, massive as they were, and as earth-shattering as they were, to the persistently foundering Chinese Republic, didn't do much to persuade the great powers to change their minds about screwing China. But it did inspire this flourishing of political energy and creativity all towards reforming and reviving and uplifting China. And at the very center of that flourishing was a magazine called New Youth. Every Chinese political or intellectual figure you've ever heard of from the first half of the 20th century, Mao Zedong, Deng Xiaoping, Lu Xiaoqi, all lived and died by New Youth. And in the pages of New Youth, front and center, were printed the first stories of Lu Shun. Lu Shun ultimately publishes a lot of really amazing short stories in New Youth. His first story, Diary of a Madman, is so good, I'm thinking about doing an entire episode about it. My New Home is excellent. Tomorrow, about a woman whose son dies while traditional Chinese doctors fleece her for every penny she has is heartbreaking. But the real apex of his work, the moment when he achieves maximum literary marvelousness, is in 1921, when he publishes in a series of installments a little novella entitled The Real Story of Ah Q. To appreciate the real story of Ah Q, you do need to understand something. It's not vital, but it's helpful, I think. And that's the distinctly Chinese literary genre of the memorial. In the good old days of the Chinese Empire, the way that information would get to the emperor was that his various governors and bureaucrats would write for him these very stylized, very formalized essays called memorials. A great many of these memorials would be about grain harvests or construction projects or general bureaucratic business. But frequently they would be about people. Some notable person, let's say Magistrate Gao, out in Fu Prefecture, would die, and the local government or some other ranking official would write a memorial about Magistrate Gao and how he was a wonderful magistrate who never took any bribes and was dutiful to his parents and commanded his children with his dying breath to always be loyal to the emperor. And if the emperor really liked one of these memorials, he'd order it to be reprinted around the country or recited to everybody in a certain area. Because, you know, couldn't we all stand to be a little bit more like Magistrate Gao? And so these memorials would become these insufferably preachy hagiographies, these embodiments of proper morals that were supposed to teach everybody how to be a good citizen or a good bureaucrat or a good parent or whatever. And for a long time in Chinese society, having one of these memorials written about you was basically everything you dreamed about as an upright Chinese bureaucrat. It was like getting the Presidential Medal of Freedom. But by the time of Lu Shun, they've become complete jokes. The country is collapsing, the economy is in chaos, Europeans are carving away the coasts, the Japanese look ready to invade at any moment and enslave millions, and what you have is some government bureaucrat going around town reading out the latest government memorial about how all the Chinese people really need to do to drive out the barbarians and make China great again is be more obedient to their parents. What Lu Shun then does in the real story of Ah Q is take this weather-worn literary form of the memorial and apply it not to some latter-day Confucian hero, but to a peasant laborer in some village in the middle of nowhere who is neither virtuous nor brave, but an utter idiot. And in doing so, 
He creates what has to be classed, I think, as one of the finest and smartest and most comprehensive works of satire ever written by anyone ever. Like I said before, the real story of AQ was published in installments, so it's broken up into a series of chapters. In the first chapter, entitled Preface, the author of the memorial begins, like all the best academics, by giving a long, meandering explanation of how it is he came to choose the title for his study of AQ. As I take up my pen to begin this distinctly mortal work, the infinite difficulty of it again deters me. My first quandary is a title. As Confucius says, if a name is not right, the words will not ring true. Wise words indeed. Lives are written in a myriad of forms, as official biographies of the great and good, archived within our celestial empire's dynastic histories, autobiographies, legends, unauthorized biographies, as footnotes, genealogies, biographical sketches. I have regretfully discarded them all. This effort of mine, I can only conclude, is the standard official biography of the man. And yet the debased vulgarity of its content and characters cause me to shy, appalled, from such presumption. So at last, I will fall back on the formulation so often used by our nation's novelists, the very dregs of our glorious literary tradition, in their constant battle with digression. Now back to the real story. There, the real story of AQ it is. Any similarity between the present work and the unforgettable real story of calligraphy by Mr. Feng Wu of the Qing dynasty is entirely unintentional. And then, once this long explanation of his title is completed, he then admits he actually knows nothing about his subject's origins, where he came from, what family he belonged to, or even what his name actually was. Because, you see, most everyone in town called the man in question A Kui, Except, that's not actually a name. Ah is just the Chinese term of familiarity, sometimes affectionate, sometimes contemptuous. It's like the Chinese equivalent of seeing somebody you knew from high school and saying, well, if it isn't old Jim. And then Kuei isn't actually a sound in the Chinese language at all. It doesn't mean anything, and so there's no way to write it down. Because the Chinese system of writing is ideographic, not phonetic. And Ah-Q himself never wrote his name down because Ah-Q was illiterate. This leaves our scholar entirely befuddled. How can you write a biography of a man whose name can't be written? But after much deliberation and speculation about how his name might actually have been Guang, he ultimately settles on an innovative solution. He'll write Ah-Kui as the Chinese character for Ah, followed by the English alphabet letter Q, as in the Q we use to write quesadilla or quasar. This sounds trivial, but this is actually really important, because it means that if you read the real story of Ah-Q in Chinese, what you have every time the story makes reference to Ah-Q's name is this letter Q glaring out at you from the middle of all these Chinese characters, this emblem of foreignness and of cultural corruption, this emblem of foreignness and corruption that you could even argue in a story very much about the backwardness of China calls into question with its austere simplicity the backwardness and inefficiency and inadaptability of the very bedrock of Chinese culture, its system of writing. The second chapter is entitled A Brief History of Ah Q's Victories. 
In this chapter, we get to spend our first real quality time with Akio. We learn that he makes his living as a day laborer. We learn that everyone in the village treats him with complete contempt. We learn how he, in turn, thinks he's better than everyone in the village. And we learn that he's so sensitive about the ringworm scars on his head that he attacks anyone who says anything in his vicinity that can even remotely be construed as referencing his scars, either with his sharp tongue or his strong fists. Except, we're told, regardless of which method he chooses, he almost always loses. In fact, he loses so often that making fun of Aku's ringworm scars so that he attacks you, and then beating him until he falls to the ground and begs you for forgiveness, is basically the town sport. When this happens, though, we're told Aku has a remarkable way of stealing victory from the jaws of defeat. Or how about, Aku would say and twist his head back round, trying to protect the base of his hair braid, A slug! I'm a slug! A slug! Now will you let me go? They would not, and went on to give his head the time-honored bashing against the nearest hard surface before swinging off, their hearts again singing with the joys of victory, thinking this time their point had been well and truly made. And yet, within ten seconds, Aku had set jubilantly off on his own way, he was now the top self-abaser in China, and once you discarded the inconvenient self-abaser, you were left with top, as in top in the civil service examinations. Ha! Scum! Once Aku's enemies had been trounced by such ingenious means, he would trot happily off to the tavern, down a few bowls of wine, crack a few jokes, start a few arguments, and, victorious again, return happily to the temple of earth and grain, where he would lay his head down and go straight to sleep. By the time of Lu Shun, China was a nation that had been laid prostrate before the world. They had been humiliated again and again on the international stage, and yet much of China, most of China, almost all of China, had refused for the last hundred years to admit that anything was wrong or that any sort of serious action was required to restore their dignity as a people. And here is that exact way of thinking, that exact failure of self-awareness, that insistence on sitting like that meme with the dog in a burning room and saying that everything is fine. And this is what makes Lu Shun's satire so excellent. He's able to take these epoch-level, societal ways of thinking and boil them down into the residents of this one village, and does so without letting their actions ever feel fake or forced or anything but the genuine stupidities of genuine people. Because, as the old cliché goes, the reasons princes go to war really are exactly the same as the reasons neighbors quarrel, or get drunk and start fistfights they can never win, or entirely self-destruct while their neighbors look on and laugh. In the third chapter, the continuing story of Aku's victories, Aku gets himself into more fights. One with a guy called, I kid you not, Harry Wang, who Aku thinks is even more contemptible than he is because of his bad facial hair. And then another with the son of one of the village's most prominent men who, much like Lu Shun himself, went off to study abroad in Japan and returned having cut off his queue, that famous braid of hair that Chinese men were required to wear by law during the Qing dynasty. This makes him a contemptible traitor in Aku's eyes, and so whenever he passes, he whispers, BALD ASS, under his breath at the fake foreign devil. Except one time, the fake foreign devil hears him and proceeds to beat him with a stick. Unlike his previous battles, though, where even if he lost, Aku was the clear moral victor, after these fights, he feels genuinely humiliated. Harry Wang is well and truly beneath him, 
And the fake foreign devil, well, he's a fake foreign devil. How could he possibly beat up a true-blooded Chinese like Ah Q? In Chapter 4, entitled Love's Tragedy, Ah Q decides that to cure his humiliation, he needs to find a woman so he can procreate. A quest that ends with him getting beaten up yet again, losing his job, and heavily fined by the town sheriff. In the fifth chapter, Akyu, now unable to find work in the village because of his unfortunate amours, ends up destitute and starving and tries to steal a bunch of turnips from a nunnery, only to be chased away by an old nun, after which he decides that he's done with the village and he's going to move to town. In the sixth chapter, Akyu returns from town, claiming to have made a whole mountain of money, working for the most prestigious man in the county, Mr. Provincial Examination. But of course, even though he was making money hand over fist and everyone respected him in town, he couldn't bear to stay in town because everyone in town insisted on calling what should be called narrow benches, long benches. And that's just so stupid, he couldn't stand it one more minute. He does seem, though, to have actually profited in some sense from his time in town. Because he now has this inexplicable bundle of clothes that don't fit him, and he starts selling them to people around town. This suddenly makes Akyu really popular, because these are good clothes, town clothes. And all the peasant folk, even the big rich families that used to hate Akyu and spit on Akyu, are all eager to get their hands on them. His prestige goes through the roof. But then he runs out of clothes, and it comes out that he actually wasn't the servant of any scholar, but a member of a gang of thieves. And not like a prestigious member of a gang of thieves. His job was to stand outside the house they were robbing, and collect the stuff the real thieves passed out through the gate. Except one particular night he got scared after the first bundle was passed to him, and ran away all the way back to the village. Alas, like poor Icarus, Akyu has flown too close to the sun and ends up thought of as even more contemptible and cowardly by his fellow villagers. In Chapter 7, Revolution, Akyu hears that revolutionaries are on the verge of capturing the local town. Revolutionaries were old news to Akyu. Why, earlier that year when he had lived in town, he had watched them being executed. Back then, he had an intuition, why he couldn't say, that these revolutionaries were rebelling against the established order of things, and that rebellion would make his life difficult. And so he had conceived a violent hatred for them. But here they were, putting the wind up even Mr. Provincial Examination, a man famous for a whole 30 miles around and about. This, taken in combination with the state of dread into which the villagers, now twittering like frightened birds, had been thrown, struck Akyu as rather delicious. Hurrah for the revolution, Akyu thought. It'll do for the whole rotten lot of them. I'm going to go over to the revolutionaries as soon as I get the chance. His sense of grievance against the world sharpened, first by the rather embarrassed circumstances in which he had recently found himself, and second by the two midday bowls of wine he had drunk on an empty stomach, Akyu floated ruminatively along his way. Suddenly, by virtue of some mental alchemy, it seemed to him as if he himself was the revolutionary party, and all Weizhuang his prisoner. Rebel! Rebel! He began shouting jubilantly. The residents of Weizhang look fearfully at him, their newly abject terror as refreshing to Akyu as a mouthful of snow on a high summer's day. This is his chance, thinks Akyu. He'll overthrow the government and then he'll be on top of the world. He goes around town harassing people and making a list of everyone he's going to execute. 
But when the revolution actually comes through town, Aku, having spent the previous night toasting the revolution with one too many libations, accidentally sleeps through the whole thing. And by the time he wakes up, the revolutionaries have passed on, leaving him behind, and the fake foreign devil of all people in charge of the village. In the eighth chapter, he tries to join the fake foreign devil's new revolutionary government, which the narrator points out is exactly the same as the old village government in every way, but the fake foreign devil refuses to acknowledge his revolutionary credentials. Furious, Aku switches sides yet again and resolves to go to town and denounce the fake foreign devil. Fine, rebel then, but I'm going to inform on you, and then I'll get to see you arrested and executed in the county town and your whole clan with you. Hwa, hwa. But then, in the final chapter, a happy ending, before he can make his denunciation, Aku finds himself accused of stealing some chests that belonged to Mr. Provincial Examination and were left in Weizhuang for safekeeping. Beaten and tortured into a confession despite being innocent, Aku is sentenced to death. On the way to the execution ground, they load him up in a cart and parade him through town. Person by person, everyone in the county, it seems, gathers into a crowd that follows behind him. Aku tries to think of something dramatic to say to them, but he can't think of anything, nor can he think of any appropriate lines of Chinese opera. And so he says nothing, but looks out at their faces and realizes that their eyes are the same ravenous, vicious, murderous eyes that he once saw in a wolf in the forest. Afterwards, the narrator informs us, public opinion in Weizhuang was divided. Of course Aku was a villain. He wouldn't have been shot otherwise. The verdict in town, though, was more ambivalent. Death by firing squad, the majority of them felt, wasn't a patch on decapitation. And the condemned man had been a miserable specimen. In that whole extended tour around the streets, he hadn't managed to choke out a single line of opera. They had followed him for nothing. Followed him for nothing. Followed him for nothing. This, I think, is one of the great short stories. First, if my plot description has achieved one thing, I hope it is that it's given you a taste of how clever and hilarious the real story of Aku is. I said this before, but I'll say it again. The real story of Aku is one of the greatest works of satire ever written. It is on the level, to my mind, with Voltaire's Candide. Every line, every scene, every plot point just tears turn-of-the-20th-century China apart, burns it to the ground, pisses on its ashes. After one of Aku's great victories, Lu Shan writes to us, There are, it is said, some victors who delight only in victory against worthy adversaries, to whom the conquest of the weak or stupid is dust or ashes in their mouths. There are others who, after overcoming everything and everyone in their path, when the field is strewn with corpses of the slain and the obeisances of the surrendered, when there is no enemy left to fight, no friend with which to celebrate, then and only then do they feel the desolate solitude of victory. This was not a weakness to which our Aq, in his inexhaustible delight with himself, was susceptible, living proof, perhaps, of the global superiority of Chinese civilization. Never, never has a writer raged against the dying of his people and yet been so charming. It's like Solo or the 120 Days of Sodom, but a thing you can enjoy. But the real story of Aku isn't just some story for sinologists or the 20th century Chinese equivalent of a really good Saturday Night Live sketch, as if there were such a thing. 
But like all great art, it rises above its moment and its culture to become about all moments in all cultures. You wouldn't even have to know where China was on a map to appreciate what Lu Shan is talking about, because the peasants of Weizhuang are dumb in the way everyone has been dumb since the dawn of history. You could set the real story of Akyu to take place in my hometown back in Pennsylvania, and it would still be the exact same story, except I'd be the fake foreign devil and Boney, who's always hanging around the hardware store with a flask of dandelion wine and a Make America Great Again hat, would be Q. Second is what it contributed to the Chinese language. Historically, when you wanted to write a piece of literature, a poem or a philosophical treatise or a novel, in China you always wrote it in what's now called classical literary Chinese. Classical literary Chinese, though, was a system of writing entirely divorced from the way that anyone in China actually spoke. It was a strictly ideographic system of writing. All of those characters we all know and love and frequently have tattooed on the smalls of our backs don't represent sounds. They represent the ideas behind sounds. Now this has certain advantages. For example, it allows Chinese people who don't have any sort of common tongue, right, who speak dozens of languages, Mandarin, Wu, Min, etc., to all communicate with each other with ease in writing. Because it doesn't matter whether you call a fuzzy four-legged creature that likes to bark a dog or a xian or a gao, because the idea is always the same and therefore the character is always the same. But it also has a downside. Namely, the classical literary Chinese is so complicated that it's almost impossible for anybody to learn who isn't some sort of super genius or some sort of rich person who can afford to spend 10 or 15 years of their life doing nothing but memorizing tens of thousands of characters. By the beginning of the 20th century, this has become a catastrophic problem. How are you supposed to build a modern country, let alone a modern republic, while using a written language that makes mass literacy basically impossible? And so one of the things the May 4th movement set their sights on from the very beginning is changing this. All sorts of people came up with all sorts of different ideas about how to do this. Some people thought that they should do away with Chinese characters entirely and write Chinese and Latin characters, like the Vietnamese ultimately decided to do. Or that they should go out and invent their own alphabet, like the Koreans had done. But the idea that ultimately takes hold comes from two of the editors of New Youth, Hu Xie and Chen Doshao. What they ultimately want to do is keep all the Chinese characters, but rearrange them to reflect the sounds and grammar of Mandarin the language spoken in northern China, particularly in Beijing. And the first piece of writing that's published in this new vernacular, the first piece of vernacular literature that anybody really reads, is the real story of Ah This means that instead of having to have memorized the tens of thousands of Chinese characters required to read anything in classical Chinese, to read the real story of Ah all a person would have to know is three or four thousand characters, the number that any passably educated member or child of the middle class would know. This is a huge difference, and it lets the real story of Akyu become this wildly popular story. If you go and ask most anyone from that generation who their favorite modern Chinese writer is, they almost all will tell you that it was Lu Shun. Because Lu Shun was not only the first great Chinese writer to write about the middle class and middle class concerns, he was the first Chinese writer that Chinese increasingly culturally and politically important middle class could actually understand. And with that popularity in turn, the real story of Akyu enforced Hu and Chen's Chinese vernacular system as the way forward for the Chinese language as a whole. 
And from their system of the vernacular, from the point of genesis that the real story of Aku provides, grows everything the Chinese have done over the last hundred years to modernize and universalize their language. Putanghua, the simplification of the characters, it all starts just about here. You'd never know that from reading a translation of the real story of Aku. You wouldn't even know it as an outsider if you held up and compared the real story of Aku to, to some work of classical Chinese. But it's a big deal. The real story of Aku means that serious literature isn't just for the elite anymore. But of the most consequence is not the delight of the story or the way that it broke new ground in the Chinese language, but the way that it found meaning in the Chinese mind. Anyone who read the real story of Aku back in the 1920s saw in it the embodiment of everything that was wrong with the China in which they were living. Its obstinacy and backwardness, its useless conservatives and pretend revolutionaries, its cowardice and cupidity, its viciousness, its nihilism, its doom. For that generation who came of age during the May 4th movement, here finally was the definitive diagnosis. The problem was the Chinese themselves. And with that diagnosis in hand, the young students and artists, intellectuals and revolutionaries set out to find the cure. It was not long after the publication of The Real Story of AQ that the Chinese Communist Party was founded in Shanghai, with one of Lu Shun's fellow editors at New Youth as its first president. And from AQ, it is easy to draw a straight line to every attempt to reform the Chinese soul, whether it was the Nationalist Party's moral rectification programs or Mao Zedong, who was fond of using references to Lu Shun's writing to explain his actions and his steadfast insistence that no political revolution in China could ever achieve anything unless it was also accompanied by a revolution in Chinese culture. And to think, there are people who will tell you literature is of no consequence in the course of human history. Thank you. This has been Episode 3 of The Joy of Serious Literature. It's been good to have you. You can find a copy of The Real Story of AQ and with a really fluid and evocative translation in the, the Penguin Classics edition of The Real Story of AQ and Other Tales of China, colon, The Complete Fiction of Lu Shun. Um, it's about uh, 300 pages and contains pretty much everything that he ever wrote of consequence. And it's a really marvelous book. Lu Shun is such a brilliant writer, so funny, so smart, that basically every story in that book is a delight. Except the first story, Nostalgia. Nostalgia is not the best, but whatever, it's juvenile. Everything else is great and you should read it. I'd also like to invite you to join me again next time when, against my better wisdom, I'll be attempting to tackle James Baldwin's first novel, Go Tell It on the Mountain. Because if there's anybody better equipped to discuss the brilliance and beauty of a book about the nature of black religiosity, it's a lapsed Presbyterian who didn't have a conversation with a black person that lasted more than a minute and a half until he was 22 years old. And last but not least... I'd like to announce that I founded an email address for the use of this podcast. It's vainlydrabsatan at gmail.com, which is an anagram of my name and which I'll put in the description. And if you have any comments or complaints or thoughts you'd like to share with me about the show, I invite you to email me. I'd love to hear from you, even if all you have to say to me is that I'm fundamentally wrong about everything or that you vehemently object to something that I've said. I'd still love to hear from you. And if I get some interesting messages, what I plan to do is create um, some little addendum podcasts where I'll read your emails and respond to them as best I can. Because, you know, we're all in this literature thing together. Godspeed.